Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Hi, Omis. Registration is now open for our first back-in-person event since the pandemic. The 2022 I Believe Survivorship Seminar will take place this year in Nashville, Tennessee. Join Acure Insight along with Dr. David Reichstein, Tennessee Retina, top physicians and experts for two days of workshops and educational sessions chock full of info and tools to help you survive and thrive with an ocular melanoma diagnosis. Of course, we'll mix in a bit of Nashville-style fun along the way. For those attending in person, we hope to see you at our welcome reception the evening of October 13th, so please plan your travel accordingly. You can reserve your hotel room using the link provided at the time of registration, or you can book your own preferred nearby favorite hotel. If you're unable to attend in person during the registration, simply select attend from home as your option. If you plan to attend in person or online, please register as soon as possible using the link in the show notes or head to tinyurl.com slash I believe 2022. And that's I spelled E-Y-E. After you register, again, just be sure to finalize your travel plans and reserve your room at a hotel there or nearby. Please email contact at acureinsight.org with any registration questions. Share the news with your fellow Omis. We can't wait to finally see you again. All right, you guys, thank you so much for joining us here on the I Believe podcast. Um, I'm sure there will be a few people joining in live. And if you're catching the recording, thank you for catching the recording. I'm actually here with Cynthia Hayes, who's the author of The Big Ordeal. And I'm going to introduce her in just a couple minutes. So hang tight. But just to run through a couple announcements, I just want to make sure that you guys are aware of the different 5Ks that we have going on this year. Currently, we have three of them that are up for registration or will be up for registration really, really soon, like by the end of this week, early next week. You can find the site for the information on those 5Ks at lookinforacure.org, and you can find one in Scottsdale, Arizona, with virtual and in-person options, as well as Dallas, Texas. Scottsdale's happening September 24th. Dallas, Texas is September or November 5th. And then we have another one that's going to be finalized and up for registration very soon, if it's not already there, for LA, for the LA area. And that's on November 12th. So save the date for that. We do currently have three of those that should be up and running for registration or will be very, very soon. We would love to have you join us in person. So thank you for those of you on the ground who are helping with volunteering, helping with getting things situated, and who are registering and telling your friends and family it means the world, and it's definitely going to be really awesome to see the impact that these 5Ks can make. Lastly, our I Believe Seminar is coming up really fast, you guys. September is right around the corner, and our I Believe Seminar is actually October 14th and 15th, and it's in Nashville. 
but I do want to make sure that you guys understand and everyone knows that there is a virtual option. So if for some reason you're unable to travel due to medical or you just it just isn't the right time for you to travel, please join us virtually. We would love to see you. I'm going to be there in person as well as most of the board and the rest of the ACIS team. But if you are able to join us virtually, please do so. Get registered. And if you are planning to join us in person and you have not registered yet, then make sure that you go ahead and get your registration taken care of, get your flights, get your hotel situated. Um, we are so excited to see you guys in Nashville. That's all I have for announcements. So give me just a minute and I'm going to bring up Cynthia so that she's ready to go and I'm going to introduce her. Cynthia is someone that I actually met at ASCO and we happened to kind of run into each other when she was, I think, at one of the booths in the patient advocacy area. And she's actually a former journalist and a Harvard-trained my management consultant and a hospital executive, and she is the author of The Big Ordeal, Understanding and Managing the Psychological Turmoil of Cancer. Since recovering from her own ordeal, she has helped to raise awareness of the shared emotional experience of cancer, the physical drivers of that experience, and how to cope with it all. When not speaking or writing about cancer emotions, she volunteers as a peer mentor to newly diagnosed patients, is an advocate tennis player and an adventure traveler, and she lives in New York City with her adoring husband and their Shih Tzu puppy. So excited to have her to join in and talk to us about the emotional emotional turmoil that a cancer diagnosis can introduce, and I hope for those of you who are joining live that you will drop any questions that you have, ask us really pretty much anything, and make sure that if you are wanting to read her book to head over to anywhere that you can purchase a book and grab The Big Ordeal so that you can start learning a little bit more. So Cynthia, I'm going to go ahead and just um, have you take it away and tell us a little bit more about what was what was your journey maybe with cancer like and what led you to writing this book? Yeah, well, thank you, Danette. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And I, I hope that people will write in with questions because this uh, should be a dialogue as much as it is a, a presentation. And, you know, as Danette said, I am a cancer survivor, not ocular melanoma, but rather I had endometrial cancer. And my diagnosis came totally out of the blue. I had been to see my gynecologist for a regular checkup. I was uh, walking down the street a week later when my cell phone rang. I looked at the phone and it said the gynecologist's office. I assumed it was the billing department because why would they be calling me? I had no issues. Everything was fine. I was healthy. But no, my doctor said there were some blah, blah, blah cells on my pap smear. And I just didn't give it another thought. But she said, you know what? Get yourself in here. I want to do another test. Let's just check this out. I was on my way to get a manicure done. I was going out that night. Um, my daughter was with me. We were, you know, focused on getting all dolled up for the big event tonight. And um, when I got to the manicurist, I had just a few seconds before she needed my hands, which was long enough to Google what those blubbity blah cells were that the doctor mentioned. And it was like, holy crap, I'm going to die of cancer. And it was just an instantaneous reaction. And of course, I didn't die of cancer. I had a very aggressive form of endometrial cancer with a history of poor outcomes. But because of a luckily well-timed pap smear, I um, caught the cancer early. And after a radical hysterectomy and uh, six months of chemo was told, N-E-D, uh, no evidence of disease. So I like to say dancing with Ned. You never know when Ned's going to step on your toes, but for the moment, Ned and I are having a good time. And I found the whole experience of cancer to be uh, surprisingly challenging. I was surprised by the suddenness of the diagnosis. I was surprised by the roller coaster of emotions that I experienced. I was surprised by who showed up and who didn't show up. I was There was just a lot of surprises. 
And there was one day when I was towards the end of my treatment. Um, I was at the gym. I was bald. Uh, treatment, uh, six months of chemo. Chemo uh, was Taxol and Paclitaxel, nasty drugs that kill all fast-growing cells, including every single hair cell, hair follicle on your body. So bald as a cue ball and at the gym, weak as can be, trying desperately to make the pedals of a uh, stationary bicycle go around. And I was approached by a total stranger who came up and sat on the bike beside me and started telling me his cancer story. And he had had melanoma 15 years earlier and started sharing some of the very same things, the incredible shock at the diagnosis, the instant panic and assumption that he was going to die, the lack of of comprehension of those around him and the struggles that he had with his own emotions, as well as interacting with others who didn't necessarily understand what it was he was going through. And it was really in talking with him that I had this sense of, my God, why is it that we all feel so isolated in our diagnosis and that nobody understands us when in fact there is such a a universal response and of course it wasn't just from one conversation but as I started talking to other people it became clear that there was this this almost universal emotional volatility and an almost universal sense of isolation and because our medical system is not really set up to deal with um, emotional issues at the same time as physical issues and because you know there are no conversations about the emotional impact of cancer we don't know that what we are experiencing is actually typical. It's not necessarily normal in that it's not necessarily a, a healthy response, but it is normal in that it is a common and typical thing. So I, based on that, I ended up uh, talking to uh, over 100 patients, a bunch of caregivers, a number of experts in all sorts of fields, and really tried to understand, well, what do we experience why do we experience that? And what can we do about it? How can we make it a little bit more manageable? And my, my goal behind all of this was to really sort of raise the level of conversation around the fact that cancer is an emotional uh, diagnosis as much as it is a physical one. And that we should understand that so that we're comfortable talking about the emotions. And cancer is emotional for a bunch of different reasons. And let's start with the fact that there are a bunch of external things that sort of drive our emotions. Um, starting with that for millennia, a, a cancer diagnosis has been a death sentence. There were no cures for most cancers and you were just, you were going to die. And it was a question of, well, is this a fast-growing cancer and um, a short death sentence or a slow-growing cancer and a long death sentence? And of course... That's no longer true. There are great treatments for many cancers and the survival rate for most cancers is really uh, pretty strong. But we still remember that, um, that death sentence and that is baked into so much of our history and media and culture um, that of course is there when we first hear those words, you've got cancer. There's also, I think, 
a greater sense of responsibility associated with a cancer diagnosis than with many other diagnoses. I mean, if you are diagnosed with Parkinson's, um, it's like, well, I didn't do anything to cause that, you know, so I'm not, I don't feel guilty. But somehow with cancer, it's like, oh, well, I didn't use enough sunscreen. I smoked cigarettes. I, you know, haven't exercised enough. I didn't wear sunglasses. I mean, whatever, we, we give ourselves a number of reasons to believe that we're responsible uh, for our own cancers. And that also contributes to our, our emotional vulnerability around it. There's also a tremendous societal stigma around mental health. And so we don't talk about mental health issues. We don't talk about the fact that depression is pretty common, not just in cancer, but in general. And we don't talk about the fact that some of us have experiences uh, as a child that stay with us throughout our lives and make us more susceptible to, uh, to stress than others. So because we don't have conversations about mental health, we don't understand exactly how common mental health issues are. Add to that the fact that when you are diagnosed, it's usually by a specialist um, or somebody who you have a brand new relationship with. So it's not your family GP who is holding your hand through uh, your cancer experience, but rather it is a stranger who all of a sudden uh, you have to put yourself in the hands of. And then there's the complexity of the diagnosis where it can take a while from the first time somebody says, oh, there's something a little suspicious here until you actually know what your diagnosis is, what type of cancer you have, what the treatment plan is going to be, and what your prognosis is. That's a long period of waiting and uncertainty and um, confusion, and that's when our emotions really uh, get the best of us. And then, of course, in this day and age, our medical care is so specialized that the doctor who sees you, you know, is like focused on the cancer, not focused on the human being. And you know, there are rare doctors out there who look beyond the cancer and see you as a patient, but it's much more normal to have, you know, a 10 minute visit, a 20 minute visit, maybe if you're lucky, an hour visit, but rarely a whole person visit. So that, those external forces really contribute to the emotional volatility, but there's also a bunch of stuff going on internally that really make um, cancer a, a very volatile time for us. Um, and Part of that has to do with something that, you know, it took a neuroscience a scientist to, to help me understand, which is that there's an inflammatory response in our bodies as a result of the presence of cancer. And that inflammatory response is useful in that it is part of the conversation that our immune system has with itself in order to bring the right resources to help um, resolve any sort of problem in the body. So you get a, a paper cut and you have a bunch of pro-inflammatory cytokines that all of a sudden are running around in your body saying, oh my God, oh my God, we're going to let an infection in. We got to get more platelets there and seal that up. We got to get <laughs> more. picturing all the cells doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and and oh. the, um, the white blood cells have to get there to um, fight infection. And then, you know, extra red blood cells have to get there because we've lost some red blood cells. Um, so all of that is coordinated by cytokines and the pro-inflammatory cytokines bring the inflammation to heal the wound and the anti-inflammatory cytokines say, okay, we're good now, let's back away. But if a paper cut can do that, imagine what major surgery can do. Um, and it turns out that the presence of cancer actually causes an inflammatory response in most cancer treatments, so radiation, surgery, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, even some immunotherapies are even um, 
uh, cytokine therapies. Um, so we're just we're awash in cytokines. And what the neuroscientist explained to me is that when too many pro-inflammatory cytokines are washing through our uh, our body, some of them pass the blood-brain uh, barrier, and the brain perceives that um, excess of pro-inflammatory cytokines as oh, we are sick. We had better climb back into bed and pull the covers over our heads because if that lion comes chasing us across the prairie, we are not going to be able to get away. And it's that that sickness behavior that ends up driving a lot of our emotional experience. So it's not that we are, you know, weak, pathetic creatures that can't deal with the reality that we have cancer, but rather, no, there is a physical it's, it's more driver. Like a biological, yeah, that biological driver of like this is this is what nature tells you know the cells to do. Um, I, I think I read somewhere that like when, or maybe yeah. I was listening to a, a book, I think I was listening to Radical Remission by Kelly Turner, but mm-hmm. she said something about how when animals are sick, it doesn't matter what they're sick with, they will stop eating and they only drink water and they sleep a lot. Yeah. And that those are like, they're, they're just natural biological responses to dealing with, to the body and dealing with and, and healing from sickness in some, in some way. So that makes complete sense to me, but I've never heard it explained that way, that, that it's those inflammatory markers that, that then become part of the blood brain barrier and they get mixed in there and they just go like, okay, you're just so tired. Like we're just, we need to rest. We just need to rest. We just need to climb back into bed and pull the covers over our head and that's it. You know, but in addition to all of that inflammatory stuff, making our, our emotions a little, um, a little wacky, there are often hormonal changes as a result of cancer and cancer treatment, whether it is the surgical removal of, in my case, ovaries, um, whether it is a, a chemical suppression of testosterone because you've got prostate cancer, whether it is as a result of chemotherapy, um, suppressing your, uh, your hormones, or maybe as part of your treatment, you're getting dexamethasone. Um, uh, steroids uh, de- like dexamethasone are often used as part of a treatment because um, they stimulate the body to A, not have uh, an allergic reaction to this toxin that we're being introduced to, but also they help the body recover from uh, treatment. And uh, they're often used in both chemotherapy and in, in radiation treatment. But dexamethasone is a steroid. Um, so jacks us up we feel great for a couple of days we taper off we feel really bad for a couple of days so i i was really surprised um day uh i had chemo on thursday friday i felt great because i was full of the dexamethasone and i was ready to run a marathon saturday and sunday i would be nauseous and lying on the couch because that's what this particular chemo did for me and on monday i would want to cry all day long. And it was only after talking with the neuroscientists that they came to understand that that's the dexamethasone leaving your system. Um, so just a lot of volatility. And then add to that the incredible stress you're going through um, at the time of your diagnosis and the fatigue that sets in as a result of, of, uh, of treatment and the presence of the disease. So we have a lot of stuff going on that makes us emotional. And of course, our emotions influence our physical health too. Um, If we are emotionally volatile, we are less likely to adhere to our medical treatment. Um, If we are experiencing um, uh, pain or side effects, um, those uh, those sensations can be amplified by our uh, emotional volatility. Um, and of course, we can't deal with day-to-day life if we are feeling 
depressed, if we are um, uh, worried about, um, uh, you know, the anxiety of is, is the cancer going to come back? Um, and so, you know, those emotions can influence our ability to even, you know, continue to work and maintain Just to the eat, insurance to, we need. To sleep, to, to, eat, to sleep, you know, to, all of those things. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, they, they color our, our entire experience of cancer. Um, what I found in, in talking to um, hundreds of patients is that, in fact, um, the emotional patterns are somewhat predictable, even though we all express them differently. Um, in fact, from the time of diagnosis through um, recovery and or end of life, emotions are pretty predictable. Um, and because we are all different, they vary in intensity and timing and how we might express them. Um, because they are likely to be influenced by both our pre-cancer and cancer experiences by our DNA, our personality, um, our prognosis, how much pain we're experiencing, and how much um, knowledge or rapport and communication we have with our medical team that uh, can help us in um, expressing and understanding our emotions. So just looking at this chart, um, the, the orange and pink roller coasters, um, that's uh, fear and stress and anxiety. I don't know how large it is on your screen, um, but the fear uh, roller coaster, the orange, um, is highest when we're first diagnosed. Um, and it begins to drop a little bit um, at the time of uh, we've made a decision about our care um, and we're going to start treatment. Um, but it can continue to build uh, throughout the entire experience and um, particularly uh, peaking if in fact um, we have a recurrence or we're progressing uh, towards the end of life. Um, and the same with stress and anxiety, uh, the, the pink roller coaster. Um, uh, it, it builds enormously as we focus on the fact that, oh my God, I have, not only do I have cancer, but now I have to make a decision about what I'm going to do about my cancer and how I'm going to move forward. Um, it can uh, lessen as we feel like we're being taken care of, um, and uh, it can then build again uh, if we have a, a recurrence or a progression. Um, but each stage along the process, or each phase uh, along the process, um, also comes with its own unique emotions. So at the time of diagnosis, for most sense. of us, um, <laughs> yeah, for most of us, we have tremendous uh, sense of of disbelief. Um, in addition to that fear and anxiety, and it's like, how how can I possibly be being diagnosed with cancer? Um, how is this happening? Um, and um, you know, and for many of us, a, a, a cancer diagnosis comes totally out of the blue. It's like we don't um, we don't anticipate that we're going to get cancer. You know. Maybe there was a family history, but we say, oh, no, I'm healthy. I'm fine. Um, so so that, that disbelief is and, and panic are, uh, are pretty common. At decision time, the next step in the process, um, often what we experience is a tremendous sense of information overload. Um, and somehow we manage, most of us, to switch into a hyper-efficiency mode where we suddenly... Um, turn off those emotions enough to engage in the process of decision making, um, and that's hard. Um, that, but we, that's hard. We, but I feel like it, like like you you pointed out in the fear roller coaster, like it it makes that fear because because you kind of stifle those emotions to effectively make a decision. The fear goes down so that you can make an educated decision. You could take in that information as much as you can. Um, I, I've heard so many patients talk about how like they feel like. 
they're, they're they become an expert almost overnight in their almost own overnight. care and it's and it's this intake this influx of information that is so it's so rapid because like you said sometimes you have 20 30 minutes with a doctor at the time of diagnosis and they're just like they just have all of the information they're like an encyclopedia and they just spit it all out and somehow you either absorb it fully or you it kind of goes over you and all you hear is cancer but when it's decision making time like you're taking it in so I don't know. I, I felt like a sponge. Like I just felt like I was just absorbing everything. everything. Um, yeah. And, and it was like, you know, that feeling of overwhelming is there for sure. But at the same time, that hyper efficiency of like getting things done and making decisions and calling and making phone calls, you know, having all of the scans that happen, the follow up to check for cancer elsewhere. Like it's, it's such a big, uh, endeavor like that first, really like at least for us in this community, it's about the first month to maybe yeah. the first two months that is really, yeah. really in-depth, high speed, lots of things are happening and you're just really having to get on the roller coaster and go with it or... And go with it. Yeah, yeah. like there's there's really no other alternative. That's right. That's right. And then once you make that decision and you start treatment, for many patients, there is a tremendous sense of relief that, oh my God, okay, Finally, somebody is dealing with my cancer. I can put myself in the hands of somebody who uh, can take care of me. Um, but it's often accompanied by a tremendous sense of isolation because now you have had to own the fact that you have cancer. Um, there's no distraction of you know getting more scans and second opinions and whatnot. It's like, nope, I am fully on the cancer bus. And that's when, for many patients, the sense of isolation really hits hard. Um, and it's also when we feel like we are handing our lives over to cancer and that we no longer have control over um, anything uh, in our lives. Um, we are now going to march uh, to cancer's uh, time schedule. Um, you know, and for me, that meant um, surgery um, within uh, two weeks of my diagnosis. Um, and uh, I was signed off as healed and ready for um, for uh, the next step um, three weeks later. And I got myself on a, you know, three, I got myself on. The doctor said, you will start on uh, chemotherapy and it will be every three weeks. And that was my life for six months. It's like, okay, this is, this is what I have to do. Um, I had no control over it, uh, literally no control. And that's a, that's a pretty typical experience. As treatment continues, um, what happens is uh, the fatigue sets in, the depression often sets in. Sometimes there's cognitive impairment as, um, uh, you know, people talk about chemo brain or cancer fog. I mean, lots of different words for it, um, but really it's a combination of um, stress and not sleeping well and um, all those cytokines um, screwing around with your brain and um, and sometimes a little extra you know cell death because you're being radiated or um, uh, getting infusions or whatever but mostly it, it has a, an awful lot to do with inflam uh, in the inflammatory response and uh, stress and, and sleep um, and, uh, you know, often uh, there's a tremendous sense of helplessness that sets in as well um, as, you know, in the middle of treatment, you don't really know, you know, is it working? Am I going to be well? Am I going to recover? What's my prognosis? Uh, where do things go from here? Um, so throughout the process um, and sometimes, um, you know, in the middle of treatment, sometimes when treatment is, is done, sometimes, uh, you know, every uh, three, six, you know, 
12 months uh, for a long time, we have testing and monitoring. Um, and for some uh, cancers, that means a, a PT. Um, sometimes it means a blood test. Sometimes it means a CT scan. Um, whatever the, uh, the, the cancer and, and testing um, uh, combination Just is. Just that monitoring cycle is, is different. I mean, it's, it's different, but it's oh. in, the same, in some sense universal, that there is always something of you're now on cancer watch. For You're now on cancer pretty much watch. the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, and and that invokes a tremendous sense of anxiety. Um, you know, we talk about scanxiety uh, among those of us who have um, uh, regular scans. Um, it's uh, it, this tremendous fear that comes up again. You know, we can we can not think about it for you know weeks or months at a time, and then all of a sudden there's a scan or a blood test on the calendar, and it's like, oh my god. I am a cancer patient. I am a survivor so far, but is that cancer back? You know, Ned hasn't stepped on my toes lately, but is he going to step on my toes this time? So that 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 tremendous fear and anxiety um, just come back in spades. Um, when well, and it uh, really just like pulls you right back into maybe the uncertainty you've been able to get some space from, <laughs> and that you've exactly. taken a break from like really acknowledging um, or just really like sitting with. It, yes. it kind of just makes a house and it says, nope, I'm here. Deal with me. <laughs> yeah. Deal with me. Deal with me. Um, now, many of us are um, lucky enough to skip over the next two uh, steps in the process. Um, but for those who do have a recurrence or a progression, one of the most common emotions is anger. Um, there was one patient I interviewed who was a minister. And um, he said when he heard that his cancer was back, he was railing, not just at the medical community, not just at the scientists who hadn't found a cure for his particular cancer, but at God, God himself. Why? Why is this happening to me? And I think that that's a relatively common experience to have this tremendous anger that the treatment and everything that you went through already didn't work, um, that the cancer is back. Um, and then also tremendous sadness and, and resignation that, oh my God, this is my life now. This is what I have to anticipate, that the cancer can come back, that the cancer might always be with me, might always be influencing my life. And if, in fact, uh, that recurrence or progression uh, leads uh, towards uh, end, end of life, um, what uh, befalls most patients is tremendous sense of frustration, uh, depression, um, sense of guilt that maybe they didn't do enough to... Uh, uh, better their situation, um, a loss of sense of purpose, um, and um, anger still, denial often, uh, acceptance eventually, uh, and tremendous grief. Um, those of us who are lucky enough to skip over that, that secondary uh, high bump, um, we get to end of treatment, uh, and you would think, okay, celebrate, break open the champagne. Um, we're, we're glad we're, we're all done. But for many patients, that's actually a, a scary time and accompanied by a tremendous sense of loss um, because you had this community while you were a cancer patient. You had all of the people that were looking at you on a regular basis. You had all of the people that were dropping by with meals or, you know, can I take care of your child? Can I babysit for a while? Let me hold your hand for a moment. Let me bring you flowers. And all of a sudden, they disappear because they figure, oh, well, you're well, you finished, you're good, 
life goes back to normal, but life isn't back to normal. We are so far from normal. And in fact, it takes somewhere between, you know, six and 18 months for our bodies to heal, depending upon the um, uh, amount of treatment and, and how healthy and fit we were before uh, treatment began. But during that um, extended period of, you know, one to two years, we feel abandoned by both the medical community and our home support team, um, and yet so not ourselves, so not ready to jump back into, uh, back into life. Eventually, we get through the um, physical healing and get to some emotional healing. And for some of us, that emotional healing brings a sense of, of um, oh, maybe that I can find some benefit, that I gain something, some post-traumatic growth that happens as a result of uh, the cancer experience. Um, and for most of us, it does include like, okay, this is my new normal. I, I can, I can deal with this. There is still this risk, but in fact, there was always that risk. I was going to get hit by that proverbial bus. And so let me just find a way to, to work this into my life and get on with, uh, with living. So that's a pretty typical, um, emotional roller coaster ride. And of course the bigger question is, well, what do we do about it? How do we manage it? And how do we get on with our lives? And I, I like to tell the patients that I mentor, look, there's no right way to cope. Um, there's only the way that works for you. Um, so there are techniques that, you know, help some people manage stress. They're, you know, might work for you. And what works for you today might not work for you tomorrow. Um, some of us rely only on ourselves. Others like to rely on um, family and friends and um, peer support and, and professional intervention. Um, but it's helpful to have a bunch of different you know, arrows in your quiver, if you will. Um, and so I like to remind people that there are really three categories of coping. There's coping by doing, active coping. And that involves everything from um, sleep and diet and exercise and socializing and laughing. Laughing and hugging are really good. Um, <laughs> whenever you can, find a way to laugh, find a way to hug somebody um, because they release uh, uh, positive chemicals in our brains, endorphins um, and um, uh, oxytocin that stimulate positive uh, thoughts and healing in our brain. So um, those are sort of the, the active ways of, of coping. There's also coping by thinking, and some of us are much more cerebral than others. Um, I, you know, for me, it's all about problem solving. How much research can I find? How can I understand what's going on? How can I break the problem down into manageable pieces? Um, uh, and and that also means finding distractions. And so, because I am cerebral, I would have to go down, you know, a really compelling novel or, you know, some other way of engaging my brain so that I wouldn't be constantly cycling back on, oh my God, there's only a 40% chance I'm going to survive this cancer. Um, and then lastly, there are uh, the mind-body coping uh, mechanisms. And, you know, yoga and meditation have become much more um, uh, common over the past couple of years uh, as uh, we've all had to cope with COVID and, and whatnot. But beyond meditation and yoga, there's also just prayer. Um, there is uh, Tai Chi and uh, Qigong and other uh, modalities of um, exercise that require us to be both um, uh, in our bodies full time. Um, but there are also things like um, knitting, 
You know, knitting, where you have to repeat the pattern to yourself, whether it is knit one, purl one, knit one, purl one, while your hands are busy, your whole body is engaged. And so anything like that, singing in the in the choir, um, whatever it is that involves both your mind and your body at the same time is a great coping mechanism. Um, again, it just doesn't allow you to, um, uh, you know, be thinking about the, uh, the cancer. Um, oh, for sure. Oh, I love breaking it down. I like how you broke it down into those three, those three categories of the active, the cerebral and the mind body connections, um, as far as coping mechanisms, because I think it's helpful just to, like you said at the beginning, like to realize there's really no perfect right way to cope. Everyone is going to cope differently. Um, but the whole, the whole general overarching theme is, you know, we do have to deal with those emotions. We, because I, I guess I know for me, like, I think they manifest in my body differently. Um, if I don't allow space for them to, to talk about them, to write about them, to, you know, do something with them, uh, whether it's, you know, to laugh, to sing, to, to do meditation, any of those kinds of things. If I don't allow space for something like that, even in small quantities, then I end up feeling more of like kind of some of the cycles that you talked about earlier in the roller coaster of the tiredness and the overwhelm. Um, Mm -hmm. and I feel like we kind of, uh, I feel like I at least tend to kind of revert back to some of those old parts of the cycle that I would so much rather, you know, not live in. Uh, because I, I've already lived it. Like, I don't want to live it again if I can avoid it. Um, but but just recognizing that I think the, the cycle will come up, maybe not in quite as high of of, uh, of levels, but that there still will be, you know, some of these Absolutely. waves, especially with things like monitoring scans. And if there's anything, anything that comes up in blood work, anything that comes up on your scans, anything that really changes that causes that kind of momentary, like, okay, like our I'm body kind of has that response of like, could this be it? Could this be the thing that I've been dreading? Could it turn out to be nothing? Like there's just all of those kind of what ifs bounce around, like just like they ricochet. Um, and, and I feel like just, just recognizing those roller coasters still will come um, during even the emotional healing phase. And, and I think that the emotional healing, like I know it's in your graphic, it's at the end, but I think sometimes the emotional healing can happen throughout like, and it can happen in waves and then you'll have another wave that goes up and then you'll have, you know, some more emotional healing. Um, and, and I don't know how much you know about ocular melanoma, but I'll just briefly summarize just to kind of like help you see like just how fast paced this can be just for OM patients and how, how quickly you get to this place of, um, even though you, you have, you know, maybe some community of other patients who are going through it as well because of the gift of social media. I mean, most of us go through treatment and are considered done with eye treatment within one to two months. And then we're right on to monitoring scans and, and it's, and it's just that constant monitoring. And for most of us, it's, it's monitoring for really the rest of our life, but we're focused on the next five to 10 years is most of, most of our experience. And, and when we're focused on that next five to 10 years, like it's, it's really just like, we're just trying to see, like, can we just be here in 10 years? Can we just be like living in here in 10 years, like regardless of anything else? And, um, and then if you have anything else that changes in between that, you know, whether or not it's, met- you know, metastases or something else happens in your life health-wise that you have to deal with, it is exacerbated, I think, by just kind of the, the it's just such a rapid spike. And then it comes straight back down and then it levels out until you have scans and it does this. And like there's, there can, there can kind of definitely feel like this, this space of I'm just surviving this. So like, how do I, how do I sit and cope with that when I'm, I'm so caught up in just surviving it? Um, and I, I liked that you, you gave the point of, 
of realizing that it can take up to like two years to recover from the trauma of the initial from, treatment. From and the physical trauma. Yeah. From the just emotional the trauma can take trauma. much longer. And, <laughs> and yes, like, but like for the physical trauma to subside, for the things like the symptoms of fatigue to go away that are the consequence of that inflammatory response, that, that's something I've never, I mean, it makes sense to me, but I've never heard it put that way. Um, and so for that to like subside, like it's, it's, I guess, immensely validating to hear that, like, it's, it's pretty normal for it to take a while. Even, even when you think of, I mean, it's really not small. I think because the eyeball is a small area, we tend to think like, oh, it's such a small surgery, but no, like it's a major Mm, surgery, whether you, (laughs) whether you have proton beam therapy, whether you have laser therapy, whatever is happening to your body, it is still a major surgery and your body needs time to recover from that. And, and it needs the time to recover from that on an emotional level as well. And that all of those take time. And I think just allowing us they um, they take, they that, take time. that space to and, realize and that that time is important. Yeah. It, it can be really hard to give yourself the grace to do that, to, to, to allow yourself the time that it takes. And, you know, we're all different. Um, our bodies don't all function on, you know, the same level. Um, and so it can, it can really take time. And just because, you know, the doctor says, well, you should be fine by now. If you're not feeling fine, you're not feeling fine. You know, I, I like to remind patients that, you know, you're the only expert in you. You're the only one who knows what it's like inside your body. Um, and so I, I often encourage patients to really advocate for themselves with their doctors about, you know, I'm not feeling well yet. Why is that? What's going on? Um, and I also like to, you know, really stress the benefit of um, exercise in recovery and coping. And I'm, I'm not an exercise physiologist, um, and I am a latecomer uh, to the exercise uh, junkie um, uh, world. Um, I am the lamest of my siblings. Um, <laughs> I, I, I can't say that I, you know, grew up exercising, but I did um, come to understand that exercise helps to reduce stress. It helps to improve your mood. It helps to support a healthy immune system. It helps to uh, uh, level those uh, those cytokines. Um, and um, it has been shown in a number of cases to speed recovery, uh, to reduce recurrence, and to help manage uh, side effects, including pain. Um, and whether it is uh, aerobic exercise or weight training um, or some sort of low intensity exercise, going for you know a, a brisk walk, which you know through most of my chemo meant I could walk you know two city blocks, um, but you know it built up from there. Um, as soon as the doctor says, yeah, it's okay to exercise, I encourage people to exercise. Um, it just it makes such a huge difference in our physical recovery and, um, in our emotional recovery. Oh, I love that. Thank you for pointing that out and just kind of drawing attention to that. That's something that we have tried to focus on as an organization. Um, this year we started with steps for sight was our, it was our first annual steps for sight and it was a virtual walk, just encouraging people like get your 7,000 plus steps a day. Um, and, and it was awesome to see how many people came together and banded together to do that, uh, both for themselves and, you know, symbolic of the patients who've been diagnosed worldwide with ocular melanoma. Um, and, but it it really is a testament, I think, to just, just how beneficial exercise is to improve our mood, um, improve like all of these physical things that you mentioned. But I think in in terms of, um, emotional coping as well, that exercise can really help with processing those emotions, um, just 
I mean, you can channel that emotion into the exercise sometimes when it's, you know, that anger, that resentment, that frustration, um, those can all be processed through exercise too, which is, uh, definitely, definitely an effective way to do that. Um, and like you said, like exercise doesn't have to be the same for everyone. Everyone's body is, is going to benefit from different things. Um, and finding what works for you is what's important for sure. Well, um, Cynthia, is there, as we kind of close up, is there anything specific that you kind of are wanting to, to end with, um, if you wanted to kind of, if we were going to wrap up in the next five or so minutes? Um, you know, the, the only other thing I would like to, to add is that, um, often our relationships take a hit when we have mm, yes. uh, cancer and they take a hit, um, because of the added stress that, um, the patient and, um, loving care partners, um, are experiencing each in their own way. You know, a loving care partner can be every bit as afraid of, um, a patient's health, um, as the patient is, um, and also afraid of how am I going to keep the household running? How am I going to do X, Y, and Z while um, the patient is is undergoing all of this? Will the patient be here, you know, a year from now to help me in whatever? Um, so that there's a lot going on in our uh, our closest relationships when when cancer's in the picture, and it, it's not uncommon for um, patients to withhold a little bit of what we're experiencing from those around us. And we, we keep that to ourselves because we don't want to admit that we're weak. Oh, and to that one, I only cried in the shower. Um, we don't want to overly burden, um, our care partners who are already carrying uh, so much. Uh, we think we're unjustified in our emotions, whatever it is, we tend to keep a little bit uh, to ourselves. And if we are keeping a little bit to ourselves and our care partners are keeping a little bit to themselves, all of a sudden this relationship has a little wedge in it. And that little wedge gets bigger and bigger and bigger over time. And it can be really hard to build that relationship back to where it was pre-cancer. Um, some relationships don't survive a cancer diagnosis, um, but those that recognize that there have been challenges to um, the relationship, um, and uh, you know, after the the crisis of um, cancer has subsided enough that we're able to own our feelings a little bit better, we're able to um, recognize uh, the importance of the relationship and and how it may have been damaged. We can build that back, but it, it starts with recognizing that this is a re relatively common experience um, and that, um, that there are special challenges to um, our intimate relationships um, uh, as a result of a diagnosis. So I just, I like to highlight that because again, it's not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of, of you know, you didn't do your relationship right. It's a common thing during cancer. And it's something that, again, we don't talk about when we talk about cancer. Um, but, uh, but it's almost always there. Oh, it's cutting out for just a sec. Hopefully, hopefully it's going to come back. Okay. I hear you back. Um, the good news is the studio is really good at catching things despite any glitches. So, um, but thank you for addressing that. I think that is something that can be very challenging. Um, especially if you feel like those relationships change and evolve or like you said, some relationships just don't survive, whether it's friendships, um, family relationships, there can be really big changes. And, and that can add to the emotional burden that, that this, like you said, this big ordeal becomes, um, 
that it has it has a lot of layers to it and and just acknowledging that those are there and that they are they're really worth <laughs> acknowledging and that they do need to be dealt with and um, dealt with and that they do affect us in different ways and that that it's okay like to to see that and to humanize that I think is is really what what I hope people can take away from this um, is just that you know being human is, is not the problem. <laughs> being human is not the problem. We all experience emotions. We all have this roller coaster. And like you said, um, everyone's experience is going to look a little different. Everyone's circumstances will be different, but the general feelings and the emotions and the roller coaster ride is, is universal to this diagnosis. Um, so thank you like for validating that for us and just for explaining that. I, I loved your explanation of the inflammatory response and how that crosses the blood-brain barrier. Like I've never heard that before. So that was so cool to me. Um, <laughs> but if you guys are able to, you know, if you're listening live, if you're listening to the recording, um, feel free to drop any questions in the chat and I will make sure to tag Cynthia over on our Facebook page and then um, if she has a moment or if we can just respond to questions there. We actually don't have time for questions right now, uh, but... If we do have a moment to just answer questions back and forth online, or as you guys have anything that comes up, uh, you can find Cynthia on Instagram and also on Facebook, I believe. Um, do you want to go ahead and tell us those Facebook pages and I'll include them in the show notes? Sure. Um, you can find me both at uh, Cynthia Hayes um, and at uh, cancer.thebigordeal. Um, and um, the book again is um, The Big Ordeal, Understanding and Managing the Psychological Turmoil of Cancer. Um, by me and a couple of co-authors who um, provided great uh, scientific um, uh, underpinnings to uh, much of what's discussed in the book. Um, and I'm, I'll also have a website, uh, thebigordeal.com. There's tremendous amount of information and patient stories and um, insights from, uh, from uh, medicine. Um, and it's uh, free. You don't have to buy a book and you can uh, learn a lot. Um, so I hope you'll come and check it out. Well, thank you. Um, I will make sure to include that in the show notes. So if you guys are checking this out via the podcast, uh, feel free to check it out. And then I'll add this to the YouTube link and the Facebook as well uh, so that you guys can find the book, you can find her website, and you can find her social media connections. Um, but Cynthia, thank you again for being here. Thank you for just validating this experience for all of us and teaching us something. Uh, and I hope that everyone can take this and apply it in their life in some way in, in coping with these emotions and recognizing them and just accepting that they're they're part of the process and that they are... It, it's okay to acknowledge them. Um, they're not the big, you know, we don't have to have it be the big elephant in the room that is ignored, like you said, with this, this stigma of mental health. Uh, so thank you again for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right, you guys, we will see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences and produced by Agora Media. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.